Warning, this is not your father's history. This is not the history your coach taught you in high school. And you won't find it on the History Channel either. No, you see, this is the history your mother warned you about. This is History Against the Grain. Your hosts, Chris Paget and Josh Weiner. We don't believe you, because we the people. Episode 48, The Province of Mutiny. Welcome to the podcast where we, in the words of Walter Benjamin, regarded as our task to brush history against the grain. I'm one of your hosts, Josh Weiner, and with me as always is the man that John Meacham calls the soul of the podcast, Chris Paget. How's it going, Chris? Uh, I don't see any reason to, you know, start with an insult, my friend. Uh, <laughs> You're the subject of his next book. What, am, what are you talking about? Uh, well played. Yeah. Um, look, I, uh, it's it's the dog days of summer, right? And yeah. uh, and yet I have to hasten to add, uh, just because we started this early, uh, who, who who's in first place in the National League West? By three games, your San Francisco Giants. <laughs> okay, and now we can move on, right? Now uh, we can move on, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Uh, well, yeah, so July, and, and I tell you, it, I think it's on a lot of people's minds right now, right? is, uh, you know, the, uh, the pending result uh, in the men's fencing program at the, uh, at the Olympics. Have you got any word on that yet? Well, yeah, I mean, we can start by, you know, the Giants. That's very provincial talk about the Giants. We are a globally focused podcast, so we got to talk about global sports, the Olympics. And yes, I may have been up last night watching fencing, uh, which, first of all, I mean, you know, so the, the way the movies show you fencing, it's all very, like, precise and, and, uh, and you know, it's like a dance, like a choreographed dance. And then when you actually watch, you know, Olympic fencing, it's just, you know, the first of all, the, the, the foils, that they're called? Mm-hmm. They're all floppy. They're flopping all over the place. Right. And then the movements are just, you know, kind of random and like spasmodic. Um, <laughs> you know, I came away. This is not true of most Olympic sports. I came away from watching fencing. And by the way, I know this is not true. I'm not, I'm not trying to uh, insult any fencers out there. I feel like I could compete in fencing. I don't Ooh. understand the rules. I don't understand the point system. But I, I feel like I could I could do pretty well in, in fencing. Well, I think you scored with that John Meacham quote uh, at the beginning. That, that, yeah. <laughs> that puts you in the front. Uh, it's not the Count of Monte Cristo. You're right. It's uh, no. you know, the, the graceful Hollywood movie fencing thing. It's a kind of helter-skelter, yes. mad rush to something that's sometimes hard to discern you know, from the layman's perspective, uh, what counts yeah. as a score, or, you know, that kind of thing. But, you know, I know it was interesting because you and I have been talking about the Olympics, right? That one of the, the fencers who I believe won gold is a Chinese fencer. Yeah. Uh, but he's he's uh, Hong Kong uh, mm-hmm. Chinese. And so when the National Anthem of China was played in the medal ceremony, uh, apparently the folks back in town in Hong Kong uh, were none too happy about that. And wanted it to be known that, as far as they were concerned, he's Hong Kong, not Chinese. Right. Well, and, and, and you sent me this, uh, this piece last week, I think, about uh, Hawaiian surfers. Surfer, surfing is a competition for the first time in the Olympics. Mm-hmm. And I think two of the American representatives are from Hawaii. And mm-hmm. when they compete in international events, usually they, they compete under the Hawaiian flag. But they're not allowed to for the Olympics. And, and this kind of gets into this, this kind of broader thing that, you know, these Olympics 
first of all, we're, we're supposed to be a history without borders on this podcast. The Olympics would seem to go completely against our founding ideal, our founding credo, I guess, uh, based as it is on, you know, these ideas of coherent nations competing for dominance. Um, now, that hasn't stopped me from being up at 1130 watching women's <laughs> skeet shooting. Uh, but, it, but it is a bizarre thing. And, you know, what that Hong Kong story suggests, what that, uh, you know, the story of these Hawaiian surfers suggests, is that as much as nationalism, in the words of Rabindranath Tagore, tries to create these neatly compressed bales of humanity bound in iron hoops, what we kind of see, I think, in each Olympics, and maybe this one in particular, is that there's some straw leaking out from those, those bales a little bit. And, you know, maybe these ideas of, of nationalism in the nation are not as clean and neat as, as the nation itself would, would prefer. No, there's there's so many examples we could you know continue to draw from, you know, to, to illustrate just how problematic, you know, the whole um, sort of you know nation state as competitive team is. And I'm not even talking about what's passing now is the Russian team, right? Which isn't <laughs> yes. actually called Russia, but rather the ROC. You want to explain that one? I, I, you know, I've spent the first day of the Olympics thinking it was the Republic of China because that's what Taiwan used to be called, and then realized well, they, they don't look Chinese. Um, and then I finally, I think, a, a kind announcer explained the the Russian Olympic Committee, but they're not allowed to to uh, they're not allowed to uh, play under the flag at all. And when they win, they don't play the Russian national anthem. I think they play. I can't remember what classical music they play, but about a Russian composer, which actually is probably cooler than these dumb national anthems we have to we have to hear instead. Which, as you point out, you know, this this triumphant moment, you're on the stand, and it's like these funeral dirges that are playing in the background. It's like so uh, out of place with with you know the the celebratory moment uh, that, that's at hand to hear these these awful national anthem uh, pieces of music. Yeah, and we're going to come back to that a little bit later in the program to talk about music and its um, its part, you know, in the not only these ceremonial traditions but in the larger history of um, uh, certainly the United States, but but you know, in in, in human history. So yeah, we're gonna we have yeah. a lot to say about music, but I don't know, Josh. The whole thing uh, watching the Olympics, you know, the whole thing just reminds me, you know. Uh, of how much has happened in the last few yes. years of our of our contemporary history, what we call the history outside the window. And it's really difficult for me now to just resume, you know, uh, post-pandemic, post-George Floyd, et cetera, to simply resume, uh, you know, at this week after all, there's testament going on on Capitol Hill about the January 6th. Yeah. insurrection it's hard for me just to sit in suspend disbelief and resume some kind of guileless fanboy you know ad adulation of the olympics uh it strikes Absolutely. me as as you know empire's hangover at this point the olympic games yeah, yeah. I, I mean I, I was kind of thinking of this is almost like the post-apocalyptic olympic games or something like that because it all feels <laughs> It feels like it's happening outside reality in some ways. I mean, even though even though reality is is constantly you know hitting us in the face, uh, you know the fact that that all the branding says Tokyo 2020 when <laughs> clearly I mean I check my check my calendar every every time, but it's 2021, and the, the idea they want to remind us that this was supposed to happen in 2020 is also not a great start because nobody wants to be reminded of of 2020. And then you have you know the COVID protocols hanging over the whole thing. I was watching. Uh, uh, beach volleyball. I've become a huge volleyball fan, apparently. And uh, they were talking about one of the American uh, competitors. 
He was in the protocols for, for whatever reason. And so he's not allowed to shower in the locker rooms with the other players. And so they, they had an image of him just being hosed down on the sand. That was how he got a shower. Um, so this is not normal stuff. And, and then you add to the fact that uh, the, the, the heat has mostly been sweltering in Tokyo, I think even more so than, than it usually would be in, in July. Uh, that same beach volleyball match, uh, I think the sand was 113 degrees, something like that. So you're constantly being reminded of you know, the crisis of, of 2020, with the pandemic. We're constantly reminded the pandemic is not actually over as much as people want to go back to normalcy. And then the other kind of cloud hanging over everything is this increasing salience of, of global warming and, and climate change, mm-hmm. which um, is making it harder and harder for people to live in places like California. Uh, but there was also massive floods in China. There's just, you know, every day there's new n- news of some kind of new environmental catastrophe. And what's so, you know, um, what I'm, I'm also reminded of is that we have these these competitions that are, as we talked about, divided into these, these you know, national teams competing against each other. But the very problems that the Olympics are pointing out to us, pandemic, climate change, are the very problems that cannot be solved on a, on a national level. Uh, they're the very problems that need a global response. And yet here we are watching, you know, this very, as you said, this almost, you know, uh, imperial relic or something like that, uh, you know, very much, you know, late 19th century relic of, of competition that just wants us to, I guess, hide our hand, heads in the 113 degree sand and pretend like, you know, we're... <laughs> Things are, are back to the way they, they're supposed to be. But, um, you know, you're, you're right that it's just there's something different about watching these particular games. And it's, it's, has, it's been a while now where, you know, I certainly haven't been rah-rah uh, U.S. team for, for a long time. But, but it feels extra uh, strange, this, this, this particular competition. Yeah, that's a good point. I think the last time you chanted USA, USA was, <laughs> what, when the Dream Team beat Angola in basketball back mm-hmm. in 92, maybe? 92, yeah. Yeah. Uh, well, you know, first of all, who says, you know, climate change and global warming doesn't have its upside? Because, you know, in the surfing competition, there was a real fear that um, that there wouldn't be enough breakers. You know, the, the, the breakers wouldn't be big enough to put on any legitimate kind of surfing contest. You know that the fear was that that the ocean, the, the seas would be you know calm and flat like a mirror or something. Mm. Uh, but but what came to the rescue? A kind of unseasonal uh, tropical storm, you know, that had the breakers up six seven feet, you know, and and uh, it made for great surfing, I tell you, you know. Uh, but no, I think in all seriousness, I think that the Olympic Games perfectly mirror, you know, the the fissures the cracks, you know, in that kind of otherwise confident picture of modernity, you know, in the age yeah. of the nation state, in the age of European uh, and American empire. And, and uh, you know, what we're seeing here are all the conceits, the hubris, right, the chauvinism, yeah. the cultural chauvinism, you know, basically, you know, unraveling. Uh, in mm-hmm. so many ways and so so fascinating, you know, where, where someone like Simone Biles or Naomi Osaka, you know, two two women with uh, African uh, ancestry in the case of Osaka, her father's Haitian, right? Mm-hmm. Um, you know, but she's competing for Japan. You know, uh, she loses in, in the third round. Now, she's already on our minds because of having pulled out of the French Open tennis tournament. Right. You know, complaining about the the mental health breakdown. You know, under the mm-hmm. the, the regime of constant media attention and expectation yeah. for performance. And Simone Biles, who pretty much everyone acknowledges the greatest 
you know, certainly gymnast of, of, of the modern era in terms of, uh, you know, her credits, right? You know, yeah. I, I don't know, I have multiple world championships, that sort of thing. Mm-hmm. Couple, uh, you know, uh, she's been in other earlier Olympics. She's got gold medals already. Uh, well, Simone, you know, pulls out of the uh, the team competition, the gymnast gymnastics, and the all around competition. It's not clear whether she'll compete. I, I tend to think she won't in the individual apparatus events uh, next week. But also, you know, uh, because of the you know the great strain and stress of performing you know in what is a very not only demanding sport but dangerous physically dangerous sport of gymnastics you know this is a woman who does unbelievable acrobatics right aerial acrobatics and and uh and so you know what we're seeing here is a new generation of young women women of color you know Mm -hmm. who have often been the mainstays after all of the competitive fields right ever since jesse owens you know upstaged adolf hitler you know black athletes have been a mainstay and where you get nations like the United States using these Olympic moments to literally put black athletes on pedestals. You know, we remember what happened in 1968, right? With yep. uh, Tommy Smith and John Carlos in Mexico City, the two American mm-hmm. sprinters, black sprinters with a raised uh, glove uh, salute and how they were summarily stripped of their medals for politicizing the games and so this bizarre denial that somehow the olympics were only about amateurism you know that politics had no place you know was finally the cover i think is being ripped off that isn't it yeah and and i, I love the point you're, you're making there and you know and also it, it goes back to the narrative because you mentioned jesse owens right jesse owens himself obviously the famous story of him competing in the 36 games in berlin you know under the mm-hmm. the, the gaze of, of adolf hitler himself and you know, winning these these uh, these great victories, but of course, you know, and, and so this story, by the way, is is often used in kind of the, the telling of this American national narrative, and it's a story of triumph over over you know racism and over the mm-hmm. you know fascism. But of course, Jesse Owens comes back to this country after the Olympics, and he's right back in a segregated nation uh, where he deals with all kinds of racism back at back home, and and so you know this kind of neat idea that you know Germany was this and it was awful, and he's you know kind of proving. You know, uh, you know himself and and you know all people of African descent to the, the Germans, but then he's going to come home and, and serve the nation. Well, that's not actually the narrative. The narrative is he comes home and deals with intense racism back home as well. So, uh, you know, the the way we tell these stories and what we want to be triumphs and what we, you know, uh, how we want to present these things is just as much a storytelling device as, as all this other stuff we, we we've talked about. And the Olympics are so good at. Uh, creating those stories. I think particularly the American broadcasts, which is what I watch, uh, you know, they always want to create these these narratives. The narratives always tend to be ones of triumph. And, you know, you, you talk about Simone Biles. I started getting really nervous in the days leading up to gymnastics because of the way she was being talked about, which was she's invincible, she's unbeatable, mm-hmm. uh, she's unprecedented. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, I, I can't imagine the mental strain that that kind of talk would have on, on anybody. Um, and, and the fact that she uh, ultimately decided to to get out, um, you know, she's getting criticized by the, the same idiots who always criticize people for this. But um, but to me, it's really inspiring. And it, it's about, um, you know, understanding your own self-worth and and uh, and being self-aware, I guess. So um, it'll be interesting to see how that story is going to be told in, in future Olympics, um, because that's, you know, how the broadcasts want to present 
uh, uh, these, these stories is as narratives and as narratives that try to get across very specific things, um, you know, to, to, to the public. Yeah, and you know, unlike Jesse Owens say, you know, Simone Biles and Naomi Osaka living, you know, in in the age of, of social media, you know, right. di- digital communication and global technology, you know, they have a way of speaking to their fans, you know, mm-hmm. the people who follow their careers and or who otherwise are interested in what they stand for as athletes. Um, you know, so they, I, I guess I prefer to think of this, Josh, as a new generation, a new age, being able to tell truth to power, you know, and, yeah. and not be so either intimidated or boxed in, you know, by threats of, you know, either commercial loss or, you know, some kind of ostracism, you know, under heel of their powerful, you know, sports governing federations, mm-hmm. gymnastics in the case of Simone and, and tennis. You know, these, these are organizations that are run mostly by powerful, affluent, often male, often white male figures, European figures, you know, who wield absolute authorities, much like the, I, the IOC itself, the International yeah. Olympic Committee itself. They're really answerable you know, to no one, they're fiefdoms, right? They're athletic mm-hmm. fiefdoms. And yet now you have someone like Naomi Osaka, who, you know, I, I looked her up on Instagram, you know, she has, oh, I forget the number, but it's, you know, extraordinary number of followers on Instagram. She uh, was the highest earner uh, female athlete, I think last year. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, in other words, she she's capable of, reaching people in myriad ways, you know, directly, much more directly than it was ever possible, you know, for a guy like, you know, Jesse Owens to do. Right. Um, and so uh, one only can imagine if, if, you know, John Carlos and Tommy Smith had had Twitter, you know, or, or Instagram at the time of the Olympics, you know, they, <laughs> they, they could have made any, uh, a case that was even more powerful than the iconic raising of, of the black gloves salute. They could have appealed directly to followers and it would have been interesting. I mean, it was a different time and a different place. Avery, Avery Brundage was the, you know, the sort of, um, you know, feudal ruler of the IOC at the time, <laughs> you know, um, uh, not a guy who would have in any way supported, not just politicizing of the sport, but, uh, or the event, but, any kind of civil rights claims or, you know, and, and I was thinking of the line that Nigel Houston, you know, who's the, the men's skateboarder, right? He's biracial, his dad's black. Uh, and he finished, I think, seventh in the street skating. He's the most famous uh, skateboarder, other than maybe Tony Hawk, uh, multiple award, you know, winning or medal winning skater, a remarkable, remarkable athlete. And, and he finished seventh the other day, but for, you know, reasons similar to Simone Biles and Naomi Osaka and many others, you know, he was, um, he was feeling, I think, used up by this process, you know, yeah. this commercial, global, capitalistic marketing, mm-hmm. nation state, you know, process that, that, you know, treats these athletes like they're Autobots or something, go out and perform for the pleasure of the crowd, but then not to be seen or heard otherwise. And, uh, he made the comment. He said, "Hey, we're human beings. You know, we, we yeah. suffer from the same, you know, uh, problems that that anyone does. You know, in, in daily life, from you know the strains and stresses and expectations, and you know. So, uh, yeah, I'm hoping 
you know, that what we're feeling and watching, because there, there's no doubt that the performance of these athletes is remarkable and yes. and always inspired, you know, but everything else, you know, from those, you know, those, those funeral dirges they call national <laughs> anthems, <laughs> you know, to the, you know, the exploitation of the athletes, the commercialization, all that stuff, you know, we hope that this is a moment where you know there's finally a reckoning because if there is i tell you it's been what we've been talking about on the program now for you know over a year is that uh, you know this this uh, you know the 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 bloom is off the rose as it were you know of the age of the nation state and i hope you know i hope that maybe in some small way you know the the courageous stance taken by these athletes you know can can only what um, facilitate that process? Yeah, no, there's there's definitely a, a reckoning to come, and uh, and so as we kind of move forward here, we want to continue talking about about stories. It's been a, a big focus of our last I don't know two or three episodes now, um, and, and so the title of this episode, Province of Mutiny, the Province of Mutiny, comes from actually our, our uh, last uh, guest Priya Sadia. Uh, it's a line from her book. She's talking about this transition of history as a discipline from one that really served in concert with power to one increasingly, you know, as we get to the, the mid 20th century and these liberation movements and decolonization occur, um, increasingly comes to kind of speak for liberation. Um, and in doing that, history began telling new stories. And, and so what we've been focused on is really trying to figure out ways that we can tell better stories and, and you can tell better stories in your own classes as well. And, and you're going to you're going to spend some time talking about, uh, you know, a, a way to talk about a particular history that gets us outside that sovereignty uh, uh, narrative that, that we've talked so much about um, and reveals something bigger than just power politics and the power structure. So uh, why don't you take us there? Well, you know, uh, a lot of our time on History Against the Grain has been spent kind of taking apart the machine of history, you know, disassembling yeah. the machinery of history, uh, looking at its component parts, understanding their relationship uh, to one another, and therefore how the machine uh, goes. And, uh, and yet we've dedicated ourselves in the second year of the podcast to uh, ways of putting not that same machine back together, but you know, using some of those component parts and others that we uh, devise, you know, from the various uh, disciplines even beyond history, um, the many disciplines, in fact, that concern themselves with the uh, the understanding of, of past and time, you know, and human experience, uh, to put together a, you know a different kind of machine, you know, uh, one yeah. that. Uh, is far more expansive, more inclusive, and doesn't uh, uh, lead us inexorably, as I believe the current machinery of history does, hmm. into the same dead end, you know, of what we might call the sovereignty trap, right? right. Uh, that is of, of histories that are written from the perspective of sovereign power, uh, of political, economic, governing power, legal governing power, military governing power, 
but instead, you know, uh, it, stories, histories that are expansive enough to capture the lived experience of, uh, you know, the majority of the Earth's people <laughs> who mm -hmm. have, uh, you know, who have ever uh, walked upon the Earth. In other words, uh, to give us uh, not only a history without borders, you know, as just as we're uh, calling, I think, for an Olympics without borders, <laughs> we are looking for a history without borders, you know, that then uh, is able to provide us with understandings we can use uh, to address the, uh, you know, the great challenges of the 21st century, that a life on this planet in the 21st century, uh, as we've seen over the last year, there's no shortage of, you know, thorny, uh, ongoing, problems of racial justice, of, of equity, of, in, you know, environmental stewardship. I mean, any number of things that we've talked about uh, that uh, do not, that are not well served. That is, that kind of problem solving is not well served by the traditional machinery of history, which only uh, told the story of how those problems were created, right. uh, all the while under the flag of progress, uh, but not how they might therefore be resolved. So, Okay, so yeah, part of what we're doing is we're talking to our listeners who are teachers, but we're talking to all our listeners, you know, because what one of the things we're trying to, I think, suggest here, Josh, you know, and, and you can uh, elaborate on this if you wish, is that what what we want to become collectively as a, as a public, as a history-consuming public, are sharper, more discerning consumers of history, you know, more demanding consumers mm -hmm. of history. What do you think? No, I think that's right. And, you know, it, this is something you, you experience all the time. If you go to a bookstore and you just go to the, you know, whatever history section they have at the bookstore, which is usually pretty minimal, uh, but it almost always is filled with books and books and books about about war, about conflict, about Winston Churchill, <laughs> about, you know, presidential <laughs> biographies. And, and, you know, that's revealing. It's very much revealing about what you know, this capital structure thinks people want or thinks people deserve to, to read about. But that should, that's not good enough, and that's not going to tell us stories, and that's not going to reveal stories that are going to solve the problems of, that we've created, as, as, you, as, as you noted. Um, we've got to tell different kinds of stories that include different kinds of people. Um, we've got to tell different kinds of narratives, uh, ones that don't fit into the narrative structures, the, the implotments that have been used up to this point. And, you know, so it's not just about hearing more voices. It's about hearing different kinds of voices as well. And, and listening for things we haven't previously listen, listened for, uh, looking in cracks we haven't previously tried to, to, to peer into. Um, and as, as we do that, I think we can create a history that will, uh, first of all, people will want to read about because you, you obviously need people to want to read and listen and, and hear these, these stories. Um, and those stories will, in turn, include more people, include more experiences, and just be richer um, and, and healthier. Uh, to use the term we, we often use to describe good history, a healthier kind of history should come out of this. I really appreciate you saying that because uh, otherwise, you know, we, I guess we, you know, we lend ourselves to what some sort of counter charge of, of maybe political correctness or something that is yeah. in, the, in the culture wars of our time, you know, to, to ask these questions, to uh, propose these new narratives uh, you know, is, is going to get you at least in the, you know, the blogosphere and the right wing media or whatever, you know, mm -hmm. is, is going to and, and not always just right wing. I mean, sometimes what we might consider the mainstream 
yes. you know, the media, that, uh, you know, it's going to get you uh, hoisted on that petard of, you know, political correctness or, or virtue signaling or something mm -hmm. like that. But it's actually, uh, it's not, it's far more important, you know, than that kind of banal culture warrior stuff. It's, uh, it, it's, it's history as a, a problem solving tool, you know, yes. to these, again, these enormous problems that confront us and, and without which, you know, these problem solving tools, we, you know, we, we, I think very likely risk the fate, you know, the Groundhog Day fate of just living through them time and time again, you know, until the lights turn off. I mean, I don't know mm -hmm. how long we can cheat, you know, the, the climate issues. I don't know how long we can cheat, you know, the, the global inequity issues uh, before, right. you know, something has to give, right? So, yep. uh, and as we think about the athletes, you know, these remarkable athletes, um, uh, like a Simone Biles, you know, we're talking about the evolution culturally, uh, politically, even athletically, of the black athlete in this country. And you can't understand something like that unless you understand the larger context of the lived experience of black lives throughout American history. But you're not going to find much uh, there if you consult those traditional histories that lend themselves to the sovereignty tales, you know, because typically Simone Biles' uh, people, uh, that is black lives generally in American history, uh, have not been part of that sovereignty equation, at least not the part that's writing the narrative, you know. So, right. uh, and so we get ourselves into a dead end if we're looking to understand that evolution, if we're looking to understand those lived experiences, we find ourselves going down the alleyway of sovereignty history and we come to a dead end and there seems to be no uh, recourse, you know. And so what we're suggesting today is that we we transcend the limitations of that kind of sovereignty-driven narrative. Mm. We put our cars in reverse, we back out of that alley, and what we're gonna find in narrative terms is a whole world of possibilities, new roads to be taken, new paths you know, to explore. And the example, uh, therefore, that I wanna use today of that, uh, you know, concern the, concerns this, uh, both this challenge and this historical reality of, of, of black lives uh, in, in, uh, in American history, I say, I say challenge because it's the narrative challenge, right? right? And the reality, because it is actual history. And let's not forget that. We're not, you know, sometimes the assumption is that what, if you don't do the sovereignty narratives, you know, the, the kinds of people you find on statues, you know, the military leaders, mm -hmm. the presidents, the commanders, you know, all that kind of stuff. The, the, the financial magnates, you know, the, the robber barons. If you're not doing that, then what? You're, you're not actually doing history or something? Um, yeah, no, I think that's, that's absolutely the attitude. I, you, you hear this complaint a lot from, from teachers, and I'm sympathetic to this, to be clear, but, you know, that I don't have time to do everything. And, and I, I get that, but, you know, often what people mean by, by everything is the same six stories <laughs> that you're supposed to tell. Right. And those are all stories of... of you know, I'll, I'll maybe come back to this quote in, in a bit, but, but Gandhi says, you know, history is just the story of interruptions of the natural order of things. And so we keep <laughs> telling the same stories of the same interruptions. And if we don't have time to tell those same six stories and we haven't, quote unquote, done history. But I, I think what you want to get into is, is that there's, a, there's different stories that, that need to be told and that can be told. Um, and they get us to a very different place than those traditional stories of interruptions.
Yeah, absolutely. Because those traditional stories end up being a kind of opiate of the people, right? In other words, yeah. they, they condition us to think of history in those terms. And so we don't yes. ask for different stories often enough or expect or hold up to the light of day, you know, the same, um, you know, poorly conceived stories that pass as, as history. So, yeah, we're detoxing here, aren't we, on history against <laughs> yeah. the grain? We're, we're beating that addiction. Uh, to tell, you know, stories of vitality and vibrancy uh, that are absolutely every bit as historically real, uh, but which add uh, the additional benefit then of giving us a chance to resolve the problems that uh, modernity has has created for us. So, you know, I was thinking about uh, another uh, guest of ours uh, and your uh, professor, Pat Manning. Mm -hmm. And, you know, we had Pat on, um, it was our great uh, pleasure, you know, to have Patrick Manning on uh, a few episodes ago talking about his book, A History of Humanity. And he talks <clears throat> early on in that book uh, because he's dealing with the, er the the sort of the origins of human community in history, right? Yeah. And he's talking early on about this, you know, this, this tendency toward the creation of uh, what he calls institutions uh, following the introduction of, of syntactic language. That is, as soon as we as a species began to master uh, syntactic language, that is the ability to communicate through verbal language, uh, that, that opened the possibility of creating larger communities where people could see themselves as having some kind of shared or common identity, he says, uh, of institution, he says, a group of people who share an objective. Mm. And, and that's interesting, because we tend to think of institutions as what as well, the Department of Motor Vehicles, you know, is an institution, <laughs> right. Uh -huh. And again, that's part of the conditioning, you know, of the sovereignty story, I would argue, the fact that we so often think of institutions as formal, bureaucratized structures, Yes. Right. Uh, on a kind of business or, or heck, even before, you know, military model. Right. Mm -hmm. You know, because those modern institutions tended to cohere around uh, what were then the biggest communities of people, namely, you know, armies. Yeah. Right. And then later factory systems and that sort of thing. And, and, and then the growth of the bureaucratic state itself. But again, that's a dead end for us, isn't it? Because if we understand institutions in that limited application, then we're only understanding what are usually the organs of sovereignty and power right. and thus falling back into the same sovereignty trap. So, you know, yeah, institutions as defined what is as trade or economics, as government, you know, as war. That's not enough. You know, even though we tend to see armies and governments and businesses as the formal uh, expressions of institution, Pat says that's actually much too narrow. You know, mm -hmm. if we go back to the formation of these human communities following, you know, the evolution of human language, we find all kinds of community institutions being created from, you know, uh, things that would, in, you know, maybe anthropologists would look at like, like food ways, you know, the gathering and, or cultivating of food and the distribution of food itself. Food becomes a kind of institution. Uh, naming practices, and I'm just giving some mm. different examples from yeah, the book, no. right? Naming practices, you know, I, personal identification, personal identity, uh, all of this becomes part of a kind of institutional process. Um, the one that I'm going to talk about today, ritual and customs. Uh, 
that reaffirm or celebrate human community uh, is also very much a part of then the, the human tendency toward uh, the creation of institutions uh, from you know early, early in our uh, species history. As Pat says, the dynamics of ritual where the movements and sounds of dance and song and the emotions of solidarity evoked by that ritual. Um, I like that a lot because, again, it's, it's sort of running against the grain of how we think of institutions as these formal systems of power. But they're very much part of the human evolution, the human historical evolution on this planet. And what defines us as human beings, as communitarian uh, uh, animals, uh, with the power of, of speech, as it were, these rituals then become the sort of ligaments or elements that, that around which these communities then can cohere, around which they take form and identity and enduring uh, understanding. And so, yeah, we should be defining our histories, not in that narrow lane, that alleyway with the dead end I'm talking about, but we need to broaden our understanding of what history itself is as written, as explained, as expressed, uh, as it relates then to the broader human experience. There's absolutely, absolutely no reason. I mean, I'll, I'll, I'll ask you, and, and you're free to contradict me, okay? Mm. <laughs> but I see there, there being absolutely no reason why we should be satisfied with understanding the definition of history in those narrow terms of business, governance, and uh, war. No, I, I completely agree with you. And, and I really like what you, you know, this idea of the dead end. And the reason why it's a dead end is because no matter what path you take, you, you get to the same, the same outcome, which is this kind of progressive you know, national, national history. Um, and so I think you know, kind of what, what we're, we're getting at here, what you're, what you're getting at is that we can tell totally different kinds of stories that take us down totally different paths that don't have to lead to that same outcome that, that so much of history has, has continually led us to, you know, from the 19th century, you know, the creation of the historical discipline. There's been a path in mind, it seems, from, from that start, and we need to break off that path. And, and, and uh, the more we can tell stories that, again, don't have to deal with just, you know, trade and, uh, and, and war, and I'm, I forget all the, the things you name, but those like right. traditional elements sure. of power, you're absolutely going to end up with something very different, a very different outcome, which is ultimately what we need. We need different historical outcomes. We need different real-world outcomes. Um, and, and I think those two things, you know, play into each other. Yeah, I, I agree. And the example I want to I give here is that of music. Mm. Because normally, you know, out, outside of, say, Pat's definition, which I think is, is wonderfully expansive and inclusive of human lived experience, you know, uh, in, the, in the, the, the form of history we've inherited, that is the histories that were written, well, beginning with your Spanish empire narratives, you know, that you talked yeah. about, uh, that were tied to, you know, the, the, the reporting of, you know, sort of sovereignty conquests in the Western mm -hmm. hemisphere of the Spanish empire, uh, down to the 19th century and the rise of the nation state and, and formal European empire in places like Africa. You know, that the, the history profession itself that we inherited, the history profession we're part of, that is of, of academia, of degree granting, you know, institutions, et cetera, mm -hmm. that, that that history is the history we've inherited. And not surprisingly, 
it was tied to those very institutions of empire and nation state that that it so often um, you know made record of, right? Yes, so right. in that tradition, uh, something like music is what maybe at best seen as a kind of cultural window dressing you know that the main <laughs> display you know is is the the systems of governance of government of ruling of power of of the military of war of conquest of uh, business of industry of capitalism you know wh where does music fit in all of that well <laughs> you know, typically it's sort of seen as what? Maybe the concern of, of folklorists or maybe anthropologists or some mm -hmm. niche specialty within the real history or something, you know? But I want to argue quite to the contrary. You know, that's part of the false consciousness, you know, that this right. inheritance of history is bestowed upon us, that something like music is fundamental, as Pat says, to the very invention of human community itself so why do we insist on marginalizing you know as a kind of uh you know as a, as a kind of oddity or specialist interest or something you know within what is then discerned as you know the real important business of history um i mean if nothing else josh look one of the things that's i think driving us both crazy now about the olympics is that at every medal ceremony what do we hear <laughs> yep well, and, and those, those national anthems and, you know, so that's one of the ways that music, you know, does fit into, into politics. It's, you know, yeah. when we think about the, the creation of the nation state, I always joke about this with, with my students that, you know, every, every nation has to do the same thing. Nation building always involves, you know, first of all, you got to convince people to be part of the nation, that kind of thing. But, but you need a flag, right? You need an Olympic mm -hmm. team and mm -hmm. then you need some terrible anthem that can be played. In the, <laughs> if you're lucky enough to, to get on the podium in the Olympics, you got to have some some dirge you can play there as well, which, you know, I'm pretty clearly always, you know, laud sovereignty. That's that's what yeah. almost every national anthem is about is lauding that, that kind of sovereignty narrative. So obviously I think you want to talk about music other than music that just serves the interests of, of sovereignty, right? I, I do for sure, you know. Um, although, I, you know, what I want to say about those national anthems is they are music. They're musical, right? Yes. And, and yet somehow there's a disconnect. It's one of those hidden in plain sight things. Because mm. it's so conditioned us, you know, uh, yeah. rise and remove your caps, you know, for the playing of the right. national anthem, mm -hmm. to watch the flags accompany the music, you know, the crescendo moment of mm -hmm. the national anthem as the flag reaches its yeah. height and the gold medal gleams, you know, yeah. that, that this is still music. This is a ritual. This is exactly what Pat yes. Manning's talking right, about, right, right. you know, like when that. he, yeah, right, when he says that... Uh, you know, ritual or customs that reaffirm or celebrate the community. In this case, the community is that that sort of fiction known as the nation state. Mm -hmm. You know, uh, I say fiction because I think much more than even other kinds of communities, it's sort of, you know, it, it hinges upon these big leaps of imagination. Yes. You know, in a nation of more than, what, 300 million uh, people or what have you, is that, uh, you know, the, the, the bonds of nationalism are a bit, tenuous but you know if, <laughs> if it if it exists in the playing of a song then what that should tell us is that song and musicality and performance is absolutely at the center even 
of this history. It's just not usually accorded that status because it's not the song, right. it's the sovereignty you're supposed to be taking your hat off for. It's not mm -hmm. just the flag, it's what supposedly the flag represents, namely the sovereignty that you're taking you know, your hat, uh, uh, removing your hat for or something. So yeah, even in the case of these sort of dreadful anthem ceremonies of the Olympics, uh, we're still seeing what Pat suggests is absolutely true about the human experience, you know, is that something like music is not just window dressing, you know, it's one of these ligaments of community or tendons of, of human community that in this case serve the interests of, of power and sovereignty. All right, so if we can establish then that music deserves its place up alongside war and governance and business in what is supposed to be the serious stuff of history, then we can move forward. And I want to uh, consider that, uh, that case today of how the lived experience of African peoples at the time of the slave, the Atlantic slave trade, peoples who are going to be coming now in very significant numbers as enslaved captives uh, to places like North America and the West Indies, how it's critical that we recognize something like music and song traditions as part of a larger, what I'll call memory tradition of African people. Uh, if we're going to then bring those lived experiences and those black lives out from what the shadows of history, out from the silences of sovereignty history, so that we can begin to understand them not only as, uh, as legitimate historically, but also as part of what we now live in our own time as the history of now, okay? Because what we're gonna find is that it's a lot easier to connect the history of now through those kinds of channels than it is through something like, you know, the, the typical sovereignty narrative of powerful governing interests. You know, I just saw this morning, Josh, on Twitter, some historian has, you know, written a new book about the Constitution. And the title was something like, Wise and Brave Men, <laughs> The Making of the Constitution. You know, it was like, oh, I, 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 you know, in other words, that's what we needed. It was another book, you know, about the, uh, you know, the, the, the wisdom under, of, under, yeah, <laughs> the, the underreported story of, yeah. <laughs> so, okay. So, um, so we go, we start with Africa, you know, because again, in the melting pot uh, uh, version of America, standard version history of America, typically we don't get Africa. You know, even where we mm -hmm. get other ethnicities celebrated in terms of their ancestral lands, the Irish in Ireland, you know, the Italians in Italy, uh, we don't typically get, uh, you know, black lives in America celebrating in the standard version history, at least celebrating Africa. You know, there's a kind, again, a silence or, you know, a kind of um, dismissal there. So, but this is absurd, right? So, because we understand that, particularly, let's say, West Africa, time of the slave trade, was a place that was steeped in, in global history, mm -hmm. uh, was a, a great sort of catalyst for gl global history. And so it makes no sense to somehow deny Africa its place, even West Africa in this case, its place. I'm talking about Senegambia, I've mentioned a few times, you know, the region of West Africa now that's comprised of those modern nation states of Senegal and the Gambia and Guinea-Bissau and some others. 
uh, but really is the land between the rivers Senegal and uh, the Gambia River. So this is a very specific place, but this is a very specific place now that was first connected to the larger Atlantic world because that's where the Portuguese are going to make connection and, and followed by the English, the Dutch, the French, Spanish, etc. And so many of the, the African people who are first being brought as enslaved captives to the Western uh, Hemisphere are coming from Senegambia initially, right? And, and yeah. as it turns out, pretty consistently uh, throughout the entirety of the uh, Atlantic slave trade. Let me read to you, though, a, a statement as uh, came across uh, in a history of West Africa. Uh, this was a story that Jata, the character Jata, Sen uh, uh, Senegambian African. This is a story that Jata had been told by his father. And in this memory, it is not the slave trade itself that is remembered, but rather the people who disappeared and mm -hmm. the culture that was theirs symbolized by music. And I love that because it starts as it gives us a storytelling starting point that isn't concerned primarily with what the institutional form of the European capital, the nascent European capitalist state uh, and the uh, the the uh, um, mechanism they, they created mm. called the slave trade. In other words, right. if we start with the slave trade, automatically we're in the province of whom? Wealthy, shipping, merchant interests, political, military interests of Europe, you know. Mm -hmm. And at most, the enslaved African people then become kind of what? Bit players as captives, as slaves. Victims, yeah stuffed aboard slave ships you know even the word slave itself tends to what it tends to deny identity it mm -hmm. tends to deny humanity personhood and these things so we're going to start with this this idea that jata the story had been told by his father that it was the people who disappeared not the slave trade the people who disappeared in the culture that was there symbolized by music so now we got a chance of what getting back to something like a lived experience on the ground, not viewed exclusively through that narrow lens of sovereignty. Um, and I guess what what we want to say then, therefore, that lived experience is not the same. That is the history of lived experience is not the same as what we've come to understand as fact history. Yes. Because fact history in our tradition, in this sovereignty tradition of reporting on the affairs of government, of business and, and the military, concerns itself with the facts that often are compiled by, arranged by, narrated by those who had every interest in keeping the lived experience out of that factual record. In other words, keeping the lived experience, in this case, of those who are enslaved out of the record. And, and we've mm -hmm. talked about this before, right? It, you know, the problem of the archive. If these archives yes. are dedicated where we get our sources. I have a feeling the guy who wrote the book about the wise men of the Constitution, <laughs> he, he went to all the usual, you know, uh, places, right, to research his piece. And what he found were accounts of the Constitution written by, compiled by, preserved by, you know, uh, those who were vested in the interests of that governing system. So yeah. you're not going to find through those archives and through those fact patterns, typically much from the perspective of those who are on the other side of it. Um, we have to look in other narrative channels for that thing as as the African uh, Africanist 
uh, Toby Green, as the historian of Africa, Toby Green says, they cannot tell us those fact patterns, cannot tell us how these processes were experienced, lived and felt mm. by those who uh, they involved. So, okay, so one of the things you, you learn when you read about West African history, right, are these, these inst what Pat would call institutions of foodways, of naming practices, uh, certainly of, of, of music and, and musicality. Uh, you've probably read uh, the narrative of Ala de Equiano before, right? Equiano yes, yeah. was a guy born in what is now modern Nigeria, was enslaved, sold into the Atlantic slave trade, eventually was able to find his way toward emancipation and, and uh, became the author of his memoir. And in Equiano's travels, he says of his native Africa, he says, uh, we are almost a nation of dancers, musicians, and poets. Now, oh, okay, so dancers, musicians, and poets, where would that typically rank then in the Western sovereignty history, Josh? That's, I mean, it's, it's like a high culture stuff, right? Uh, I mean, sometimes pop right. culture depends on what, what type, but often that stuff shows up as kind of the, the, the high culture, um, but not in the archives. You know, uh, right. it doesn't show up in the archives, and it doesn't tend to show up in, in kind of the, the normal channels of, of narrative history either. Um, yeah, I like that a lot. I mean, because at most you're going to get a kind of what sort of a condescending nod to it being yes. pop culture or something, mm -hmm. you know, or lowbrow culture or something, right. you know, uh, which, of course, is, is absurd. And there's been a lot of work for many years now uh, to, in effect, um, you know, reclaim those kinds of, of cultural forms. And, and I think with Pat's definition, you know, now what we can do is not just reclaim them as vital in their own right, but to do what's been so hard to do up to this point, which is put them at the center of the narrative. Mm -hmm. Because even though we have all these great, you know, I mean, from, you know, ethnomusicologists and, and uh, folklorists and others who have done so much to preserve, for example, traditional song and music, they sort of get siloed, you know, even within the larger historical domain. So we want to take them out of the silos and we want to put them right into the center of the narrative, you know, of, 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 of who we are. That's really interesting. You say that this is something we didn't get to talk about with, with, with Priya uh, Satya the other, uh, the other week is that, you know, this is a big part of, of late in her book. She talks about the importance of Urdu poetry and the anti, anti-colonial Urdu poetry, um, which, you know, in the late 19th and, and into the 20th century is, is very much, trying to present a different kind of historicism outside, you know, this traditional kind of Western version version of history. And, and you know, in her mind, it's looking at those kinds of writers, those kinds of poets that opens up this entirely new window and in, in how we can understand not just modernity, but also the, the critiques and the, 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 the attempts to, to create something other than this, this model of, of, uh, of modernity. So, you know, th there's certainly this, this, I think increase attention being pay, paid to these kind of art forms, not just as art, not just popular culture, not just as low culture or high culture, but as as political in some cases, as resistance based in, in other cases, but also just in, you know as as markers of of identity and, and types of storytelling that are, um, if not even opposed, they're just they follow a different path than the kinds of stories we usually look for and the kinds of, of thoughts about history and about ourselves that, that we often look for. 
Yeah, I agree. I mean, that's the problem with the conditioning, you know, of the sovereignty narrative, you know, is that we, we just assume naturally that one is real history and the other is maybe mere curiosity or, as I say, window dressing or maybe even uh, interesting but not terribly important <laughs> to the real business of history, you know. And uh, yeah. But look, you know, I mean, and I'm, I'm using Equiano here just for a bit, not, and he's not even Senegambian, you know, so I'm, I'm generalizing in certain ways about West African musical culture, and I'll, re and I'll get back to Senegambia in a second. But, you know, I think it, we have to get our, our sort of our, our, um, our interpretive uh, dials turned on here because of that conditioning. Uh, otherwise, we'll think of it as being a mere curiosity. But it's like looking at food ways, you know. I mean, if you look at how people feed themselves, you're not just looking at food. You know, you're looking at a whole series of relationships, institutional relationships that start with, you know, which food is cultivated where, uh, which food is harvested by whom, you know, right on down to your dinner plate, you know, through an entire apparatus of, of agriculture and marketing and commerce and you know, and in our time, you know, everything from the, the, the FDA approvals of, I mean, you know, it becomes an extraordinarily dense thicket of uh, institutional relationships. Start with a humble carrot and that's what you get. <laughs> yeah, you know yeah. what I mean? Well, and the same thing is true of music. You know, we tend to think of music being, you know, what, purely for entertainment or something. But listen to Equiano talks about how music and singing filled every corner of life in West African societies, from spiritual ceremonies to tribal celebrations. To quote him, he says, Thus every great event, such as a triumphant return from battle or other cause of public rejoicing, mm. is celebrated in public dances, which are accompanied with songs and music suited to the occasion. Yeah, so the thing here, again, is to see this not just as what we might regard in our own time as a kind of what a kind of cultural pastime as as entertainment, mm. but something an institution in Pat Manning's terms that is at the very center of the lived experience and history of these West African people. And we know that these uh, before European uh, rival, typically, and, and with the exception of, of the Islamic tradition, that these West African cultures were typically oral cultures. That is, they were based on the spoken word, on the expression and presentation and performance of the spoken word, including uh, in something like song, you know. So in other words, the first thing we have to do is get our minds around the idea that this wasn't just entertainment, that this was community-based performance, mm -hmm. uh, expression of uh, events, stories, histories. You know, we in Senegambia, the tradition of the griot uh, were the praise singers. You know, they were the, the official keepers of historical memory who threw song because of the cadence, cadenced rhythm of song and, and even rhyme schemes and such could, you know, become the repositories of, you know, a terrific body of historical knowledge as expressed through song. Although in the case of the, the Senegambian griots, they, they tended to be the praise singers of the powerful, you know, so they were sort of the John Meacham's 
of their time <laughs> telling the stories of why certain lineages were powerful and certain rulers were therefore legitimate. But that's but that came out of this more expressive than tradition oral culture of song, musicality, instrumentation. Uh, it's so fun, you know, when you read about these sort of devotion to something like musical instruments, you know, to, to accompany uh, song and uh, the Chora, for example, a 21 stringed musical instrument, right? 21 strings that was the main instrument used by the Mandinka praise singers. These are West African Senegalese uh, or Senegambian people, the Mandinka praise singers and oral historians. This is sophisticated stuff, right? It's, a, it's an instrument, by the way, it's still used in Senegambia today. Uh, but many others, uh, the balafon uh, from Mali was like a, you know, a xylophone. Uh, contigo, a three-stringed instrument, the balambado, a gourd harp, and many, many more. I mean, these were instruments fabricated by people in the course of community building, of institutional practice, of memory, of identity, storytelling, all of these things. So far beyond what we might consider just to be the kind of top 40, you know, um, pop culture nature of, of music, say, in our time, uh, as we said before, like with the national anthems, music, that's just one sort of specific kind of expression with music, right? That there's, there's music that flows through the rituals of something like sports and, uh, and, the, and the meeting place of sovereignty in sports at the Olympics. Uh, okay, so we go back to then uh, Senegambia and the Malenke, Wolof, Futa, Saninke, Bambara, Pular. These are the, the varieties of language, ethnic, ethno-linguistic identities of Senegambia among all these groups of people. You know, these storytellers and these singers uh, exist many, many times as part of a specific caste of singers, musicians, storytellers. That is, it's inherited from one generation to the next. They combine the roles of historians, genealogists, musicians, spokespeople, advisors, diplomats, interpreters, reporters, composers, teachers, poets. I mean, this is an inclusive you know, uh, aspect, right, of daily life, of lived experience, of identity and heritage in the, uh, you know, the form of musical uh, performance. Let me uh, read here uh, a quick piece, and this is from Gwen Hall's book on colonial Louisiana, uh, and she's talking about the Senegambian uh, heritage, you know, of, of many of those enslaved captive laborers who come to French Louisiana and many other places. She says of their heritage, musical performance is a religious activity. Each musical performance is a prayer. The harp, through its rhythms and tones, restores order to all that is troubled in the universe. Before beginning to play, the harpist places his mouth to the opening of the case and whispers to Pharaoh, now it is your turn, organize hmm. the world. Thus, everyday activities have a ceremonial religious significance that is and was easily transportable. And what she's talking about there is transportable, gets it to the, the center of what I wanna to say today about uh, musicality. When we think, Josh, of the way the sovereignty narrative often goes, you know, to deal with something like the slave trade, 
it, it really obscures and effectively erases any depth of history in, in West Africa, right? It, it really, mm -hmm. it concerns itself more with the machinations of European investors, slavers, merchants, colonizers, etc. And as I say, tends to reduce the place in the narrative of the Africans themselves you know, behind that mask of slave to a kind of uh, secondary role in somebody else's story. Now, one of the reasons for this is because of the nature of the Middle Passage of the slave, uh, the slave Atlantic slave trade itself. And I'm not going to go into what we are familiar with, you know, the sort of catalog of horrors aboard the slave ships. That's all very true, but in its own way then serves the interests of the sovereignty narrative by suggesting what? There's a kind of cultural holocaust or something that happens, you know, across the Atlantic Ocean that then delivers these African people tabula rasa, you know, mm -hmm. on the shores of the European colonies in places like North America. That is, they come essentially as people who have been vanquished of their own history and identity and thus are a kind of blank slate for Europeans now to begin writing upon, you know, and assimilating into these slavery uh, systems of the West. Well, okay, if we're talking about something institutionally like African governance, that's, that's probably true, right? I mean, in other words, African systems of governing don't somehow carry through the slave transit, the Atlantic transit, the slave trade transit to the new world. You don't see new African governments established, except where? Except in places like the Maroon communities, right, of Jamaica, mm -hmm. where you have large numbers of runaway people re-establishing some of those governmental traditions. But by and large, these people are going to live under whose governing institutions? Well, under Western. And, and a lot yes. of times, even those, those Maroon communities are kind of replicating you know, there's there's might be African elements, but there's also indigenous elements and there's also, you know, kind of uh, Western or European elements uh, built into those mm -hmm. as, as well. So, uh, yeah, it ends up becoming more more of this mix. Uh, I, I, you know, I liked what you're saying about it's, you know, that when Africans arrive in, in the Western Hemisphere, it's not just a tabula rasa upon which can be written, you know, all these new things. And it, it reminds me that when, in, when Columbus arrives in the Western Hemisphere, um, in his first letter, he, he describes uh, the indigenous people he encounters as having no religion, right? And, mm -hmm. and kind of the idea there was to, you know, if they have no religion, then we can therefore write on that blank space, you know, this traditional Catholic Christianity. And w what actually happens over the course of, of, of that missionization and proselytization is that um, indigenous people, while becoming quote-unquote Catholic, uh, they also mix in all kinds of indigenous traditions into that Catholicism to the, to the point that um, at, a, at a certain point in that Spanish imperial history, uh, the Inquisition just stops uh, prosecuting cases against indigenous people because they realize they can never extricate those, those indigenous elements of, of Catholicism. And they actually create a new category they call them permanent neophytes. Uh, they're, constant, they're, they're just going to be permanent neophytes because we're never going to be able to uh, get rid of these things. And, and, and that's another case where, you know, again, the, the huge loss of life uh, due to disease um, is said to have, you know, destroyed culture, destroyed um, those traditions. But in those kind of indigenous Catholic traditions, we see all kinds of survivals in the same way that I think you're, you're suggesting that, the, you know, the, the transatlantic slave trade does not erase things. Um, it does massive amounts of damage to a lot of things, but there's going to be survival. And, you know, that story you told at the beginning of the disappearing of, of music, if it's disappearing in one place, it's going to arrive somewhere else. It's going to, it's going to reappear somewhere else. And, and so that's a fascinating story in and of itself. 
Yeah, I agree. And, you know, we've said before, you know, culture is like water. It finds the cracks, you know. Mm -hmm. And and so what we're trying to do is we're trying to recognize just how uh, central these what I'm calling memory traditions here, because unlike, say, governing as an institution, which is, by the way, again, this is a stacked deck, Josh, this this history of sovereignty, uh, sovereignty based history we've inherited, because in effect, if we're only going to look then chiefly to governing systems, to government, ways of governing, formal institutions of government, and those African governing systems by and large are ruptured in the slave trade transit, then what are we likely to find about African governing in the records of the new world? Virtually nothing, Right. right? Because as it turns out, some institutions were more likely to be ruptured than others. You know, mm-hmm. and something like governing, which is a more kind of formalized institution, uh, is not going to African governing is not going to su- survive except in those sort of pockets, you know, cultural pockets that we mentioned. But by and large, it's going to be European governments, European lawmaking, European enforcement of law, European military, right. etc. And so if we're looking in the archives that contain the records of those institutions, what are we going to find about African governing? Virtually nothing. Nothing. Right. Nothing. So we have to look at the institutions that then do survive through what I'm calling a memory tradition here. And something like uh, musicality is is much more likely, you know, in a kind of, of, uh, you know, sort of Darwinian imperative, you might say, to the Mm -hmm. experience of the Atlantic slave trade is much more likely to survive. For the simple fact that what these this musical institution of West Africa, you know, uh, the, uh, plural institutions of West Africa, traditions, meanings, uh, all reside where they don't reside necessarily in an external edifice, you know, right. a king's throne or something. They reside in the mind of the bearer, mm-hmm. right? Um, Anybody knows that and knows about music when you can't get that earworm out of your head, you know, <laughs> that's where it resides. And even the instruments I mentioned, uh, it, it's not so much the literal physical artifacts, those in, instruments, as the knowledge of them, right? So what are we going to see when we find, for example, Senegambians, you know, arriving in the new world without the formal governing institutions they're used to, that's been ruptured, without many, many aspects of the lives they had, the formal institutional lives they had in Africa being ruptured. What are they nevertheless still carrying with them? They're carrying the memory traditions Mm -hmm. of something like, uh, well, food, of naming, but also of, of music. Right. And thus we'll begin the work, as you suggest, of recreating, reapplying, reestablishing those traditions. And as we'll see in the guise now of a new world setting that also invests them with the European traditions and even the Native American traditions. So the process we're talking about isn't, strictly speaking, just African survival. It's the creolizing process. It's that new blend, that new mix with the materials at hand. So, you know, if you're going to have a certain kind of, you know, let's say West African instrument like the Kora, you know, which is the 21-stringed musical uh, instrument or the Contingo, a three-stringed instrument, you know, what what you're going to get is a kind of new world version of that, right? You're going to get the improvisation 
using the materials at hand, let's say a gourd, let's say an animal skin, let's say the fabrication of strings into what will be, you know, a kind of, uh, what a kind of variation of the African model, because you don't, you don't have, it's not like you're going to the, you know, the guitar store, you know, to order <laughs> from Mali, you know, uh, an authentic African, you know, uh, musical instrument. You're, you're improvising, you're recreating, that's what creolization is. But over and over again, that's what's happening in the new world, right? Mm -hmm. That is, as Gwen Hall suggests, that this was a memory that then gets reapplied in the new world conditions to create and affect a new kind of uh, Creole. It's Afro-Creole, let's not lose sight of this. I mean, yeah. it has a heavy debt, you know, to the African institutions of music. Now, um, so there's a guy named Ibrahim Asek. And who's Ibrahim Asek? Well, he is the director of the Whitney Plantation in Louisiana. And if you know a little bit about this uh, story, the backstory, Clint Smith, has published a book, Clint Smith, a journalist, a black journalist in America, has published a book, How the Word is Past, A Reckoning with the History of Slavery Across America. And one of the chapters of Clint Smith's book deals with the Whitney Plantation and Ibrahim Asek. And Whitney was started, was funded by a wealthy uh, white New Orleans attorney who had bought this land, a former plantation land uh, in Louisiana, had long served, uh, I think, oh, I want to say it was a sugar plantation, maybe in the antebellum period, bought the land and was thinking originally of it just as an investment, right, opportunity in real estate, but then was uh, impressed, I think, more he learned about the history of it and became f a full-fledged supporter of telling the story mm. of this old plantation and particularly of the lives of those who were enslaved there. Um, and so... The Whitney Plantation, you can look it up online. We'll put the the, the, uh, the URL on our uh, episode page and you can kind of see what they're about. But you can visit the Whitney Plantation. They do tours and it's all dedicated again to the lived experience of the African people who were enslaved there. Now, uh, Ibrahim Asek, as his name suggests, uh, is himself a uh, Afro-Muslim immigrant to the United States, right? He's from Senegal. Uh, but he heard Gwen Hall speak in Senegal about her book on Louisiana uh, years ago and was inspired to travel to the United States and to the South to learn more about the experience of the Africans who were taken uh, as enslaved captives, stolen away from their native lands and taken to uh, that uh, region of North America. And he recalled that he was on a tour uh, from Senegal sponsored by uh, one of the uh, agencies, sort of international agencies, cultural agencies. And while he was in Oxford, Mississippi, well, here's what he has to say. The Delta Blues is so close to our musical culture in the Sahara of Africa. When we get closer to the desert, that's where you see many people singing along with the African banjo very sad songs. So I found many similarities there. So what is he comparing? He's comparing uh, what in his mind is the connection between these uh, musical traditions of the Senegal region uh, with the musical traditions hearing in the Delta of Mississippi, what we call the blues, right? What mm -hmm. do you think? Of, what do you think about that? It's incredible. It's so cool. I mean, that that he could just hear this and right away it brought him back to you know his own country and his own 
region and, and uh, could see those connections right there. And it reminds me also, we talked, I don't remember how many episodes ago about this uh, Nigerian uh, musician, Mdu Mokhtar, yeah. who's, who's playing in some ways, you know, kind of this traditional music of, of uh, you know, the Sahara, but he's doing it with, you know, electric guitars and, and mm -hmm. kind of Western instruments. And it does speak to, you know, this very creative process that's happening. That's, that's what's striking me as you're talking is that, you know, the story is so often told, the story of, of the slave trade is told just in terms of destructiveness. And obviously, that's a huge part of it. We don't want to downplay how destructive, how, how inhumane, how horrific uh, the, the slave trade and then the, the system of enslavement itself was. But there's a, there's a real simple way, I think you're suggesting, that we can, we can reorient this story away from just destructiveness, just, uh, um, you know, the disappearance of culture, just uh, removal mm -hmm. of, of, of things, and turn it into a story of, of creation and creativity, which is coming out of destructiveness, coming out of inhumanity, coming out of these, these terrible things, but makes a story so much more a story of resilience as opposed to just victimhood. Um, and it's, it's, mm -hmm. it's, it's a real new way. I don't, I don't know a new way, but it's a real extremely different way of presenting that story and it's it's a version of the story that's open to to any of us who want to talk about uh the transatlantic slave trade it, it's not just about although that is part of it victimhood uh uh you know removal um all these bad things but there is this incredible aspect as well of about survival about resilience and about creative creativity absolutely you know and it gives lie right to the conceit of the sovereignty history that somehow there is no history there where africans are concerned i mean that was an absurd you know sort of cover right you know a legitimizing cover to the yeah. the slave trade and enslavement uh, if you deny people a history, you can do anything you want with them, in other words, right? You know, and this gives lie to that because it shows us that in people who indeed were enslaved under this brutal regime, nevertheless did the most human of things, as Pat Manning says, they began forming mm -hmm. communities and institutions, even under the laboring yoke of, of enslavement. In other words, uh, finding the necessity of identifying themselves now, having been ripped from their homes, ripped from their, their, um, you know, their heritage, right, literally taken from their families and, and such, their villages, their, their places, uh, and transplanted now in an entirely foreign place under an entirely foreign regime. Nevertheless, you know, building on these institutional foundations in the ways that were possible. Uh, again, back to Ibrahim Isek, he says, most African-Americans don't know much about Africa and Africans, and most Africans don't know much about African-Americans. They may mm -hmm. know the music. They may know something related to the culture. They don't really know about the history of slavery in the Western Hemisphere. So I really felt that there's a necessity for us to better know the diaspora. And I was so glad to be able to work on a topic like this. And he's talking about not just the music of the Delta region in Louisiana, and obviously maybe the most, what, the most famous repository of American music, New Orleans, Right. Uh, but but the whole thread of connection, you know, with these memory traditions to Africa uh, so that not only are people uh, African-American people, you know, aware of this historical font, you know, but so too then are are Africans, West modern mm -hmm. West Africans. Right. Uh, OK. So, yeah, 
The Mississippi River, he says, was the main artery through which African culture was introduced here and became a very important part of the definition of American culture and identity. And it's that last part that I want to emphasize, a very important part of the definition of American culture and identity. Think of the Mississippi River, Josh, you know, as a, as a, as a metaphor, as a geography, as, as an artery of commerce in America. It'd be hard to find a more central place right in the American story. I mean, even if you're just reading Mark Twain, mm -hmm. you know, I mean, this is a place that we refer to as what the heartland or something, the Mississippi. Right. But but we don't always understand the Mississippi in terms of these African connections. You know, we tend to whitewash it and see it in other ways, you know, uh, even though even in Huckleberry Finn, right, there's there's a black guy on the raft with Huck. You know, mm -hmm. I mean, it's all there, hidden in plain sight. Uh, but it's the what he calls then the miseducation. Ibrahim Isek does the miseducation of the mind and the hidden history. You know, Clint Smith, the author of the book, I'm mentioning how the word is passed on. So it's a wonderful read, and I highly encourage because he also goes to Senegal and to one of the main slave trading ports of Senegal, and he tries to you know, make the connection between the storytelling traditions on the African side, um, which in some ways, by the way, are just as, um, you know, abbreviated where this cross-Atlantic story is concerned. Uh, right. In other words, as Sex suggested, Africans, modern Africans, don't know that much, right, about African-American history, for example. All right, even if they know things like music, as you pointed out, you know, Mokhtar, who is a Touareg, musician right on the you know, the margins of the Sahara and Senegambia, you know, he's, he's, he's an, you know, Jimi Hendrix is one of his yeah. idols, right? Right, right? And, and yet he's doing this very cool sort of touring take on traditional guitar music, uh, American guitar, rock music, British rock music, that kind of thing. Uh, so yeah, so the, the, the passages go both ways for sure, right down to the present. But here's what Clint Smith writes. He says, lineage is a strand of smoke making its way into the sky, even though we can't always tell where it's coming from. Mm. Even though sometimes we can't distinguish the smoke from the sky itself. And I thought that was kind of a lovely, the kind of ethereal quality of what we're doing. Because, you know, if it were something like, what, political governance, we'd say, oh, well, the, you know, the English Revolution of of 1687, you know, or the mag, even something like the Magna Carta, you know, we'd yeah. want to create all these sort of documentary pedigrees for something like what American democracy, I guess. But when it comes to music or something like that, again, the way that it's sort of limited in the narrative of the sovereign, uh, the sovereignty narrative, you know, it's, it's kind of like, like he says, like it's a column of smoke. It's just something in the air, you know, something mm -hmm. that floats across the sky. But Again, what we're saying today is that things that float across the sky are history. You know, that's yeah. history floating across the sky here, and we should acknowledge it as such. And so I want to finish this with a contextual example then of one African-American musician who provides us with this kind of this kind of link, you know, historically in the narrative that we can draw upon. And it revolves around a particular instrument, the banjo. Mm -hmm. which, gee, I don't know. I mean, you know, I, I would say most people might identify the banjo these days with what, something like bluegrass or country music. 
Yeah. And therefore, largely with white people's music. Definitely. Maybe. I don't know if you agree with me there, but I no, think no, that's yeah. my sense of it, you know. But actually, the banjo is a, is a, one of these instruments then of African origin, right? There's some who even argue that the name comes from uh, an African uh, word, mbanza. And banza, mm. but but the music, uh, the instrument itself, almost certainly, it was an improvised version of of one of those stringed instruments of West Africa that I mentioned, usually with nothing more than you know a, a some kind of gourd with a skin stretched across it, you know, taut to create the box, the banjo box, and then you know some kind of stringed accessory made from you know the the ligaments of an of an animal or what have you in the days before metal strings you know so creating you know cat gut that kind of thing right so creating these musical instruments eventually creating the banjo now there's a whole thing we could do here but uh, you know in the interest of 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 staying within our uh, already generous uh, 90 minute per episode <laughs> <laughs> uh format i want to say that the banjo created then by african players transplanted in, in, in the Americas as part of that creation of institution that Pat Manning talked about. That is, when so much was denied one in enslavement, certainly in terms of political institutions, the law wasn't on your side, the government wasn't on your side, sovereignty was not on your side, the institutions you created were those that you could govern yourselves. And what better example than of something like music and instrumentation, banjo picking becoming an essential part of black life in the time of slavery. Even the style of picking the banjo, and I'm not a musicologist, but I know the down picking using the thumb was very much an African style of playing these stringed instruments, right? Now, the interesting thing about it is that by and by, culture being like water and finding the cracks, this music was played and performed in the slave quarters most often, but guess who hears it by and by? White folks do, right? Mm -hmm. And guess who begins mimicking it and requesting it? But white folks. Now, this shouldn't be surprising, right? I mean, anybody right. who's heard a suburban white kid do affect a kind of hip hop slang knows right. of the mutability and mimicry of culture. Uh, across lines, across ethnic lines, racial lines, etc. And so you would have in places like Barbados and places like Louisiana, uh, Jamaica, you would have these these song traditions, these memory traditions. And again, memory because they are carried in the minds of those who were enslaved, recreated in the Americas. You, you're having this music played and, and we have all kinds of evidence that suggests that whites, white enslavers began you know, having the enslaved play this music for their own purposes. So at weddings, at white weddings, uh, you know, albeit in a kind of tempered version, right? You know, but the, it's just the fact the most talented musicians, the most musicality often inherited in these these slave cultures, uh, the cultures of the enslaved, that you would have that music finding its way into white rituals as well. And, uh, oh, there's all kinds of uh, lovely uh, quotes, often lamenting, by the way, you would have these sort of cultural, white cultural critics lamenting the fact that young, say, young Southern white kids, in the, in the case of the United States, you know, were starting to uh, want to play this music or hear this music or singing this, these songs 
in their own right. And this is long before the age of commercial music of the 20th century, even just in informal ways, what we call the folk culture of a people, you know, but it, at, you know, at celebrations, you know, at horse yeah. races, at weddings, a song like Camp Town Races by Stephen Foster, the, one of the first widely popular white, um, you know, uh, songwriters of the 19th century, that, that he's basically doing what? Music drawn from the slave quarters. And so a yeah. song like Camp Town Races, which I sang as a kid in school, yeah, was dr drawn right from that culture. To the old lady's house one day, and she told me, walk right in. I said, I thank you. She said, well, will you sit down? I said, thank you, ma'am. She says to me, she said, well, how long you going to be here? I said, I won't be here but a little while. And so that night, somewhere or another, I'll come as a dreaming. Got up there about 12 o'clock one night there, 1913. So got old banya. I said, you know one thing, Bessie? I said, you told me to walk in here. Now, you know I must get something other on that. And this is the way it went. Now you walk right in. All right, so that was Gus Cannon, uh, who we heard talking in that, that clip and then playing uh, one of his uh, original songs, a song called Walk Right In. Cannon's a great example, really, of what I'm talking about. Um, born on a Mississippi plantation in 1883, uh, he lives most of his life as a kind of itinerant labor, moving around uh, the South, picking up jobs, uh, day jobs of all kinds. But really what he was, was a musician uh, and had taught himself to play. It said he, he uh, uh, not only did he master the banjo, but he taught himself to play it after fashioning an instrument from a frying pan and a <laughs> raccoon skin. Now, uh, uh, let's say that that's exactly how it happened. I mean, I, I love you know the folklore of it uh, for sure, but we know that it's true enough and that these instruments were often improvised it's said that he ran away uh, from home at the age of 15 and began his career entertaining around work sites, you know, sawmills, the levees of the Mississippi Delta, the railroad camps, etc. Eventually, uh, when the technology came around, you know, with popular music, the rise of popular music in the 20th century, particular uh, forms of jazz, uh, obviously, ragtime. These in the age of recorded music now, beginning with the Edison discs in the late 1800s, right? But then the move to vinyl in the 1920s, accompanied by the uh, by the way with the rise of radio, so te you know, sort of telecommunications, presented now for the first time a real opportunity for these musicians to get their music recorded and even broadcast in a commercial market of musical listening, right, uh, in an age of vinyl record presses where they could then buy your music. People, consumers, could buy your music. And so Cannon's one of these guys. He began recording uh, under the name of Banjo Joe uh, for Paramount Records in 1927 uh, and did a, a recording there with a bunch of other guys 
that became emblematic of what was called jug band music. It was his band, the Jug Stompers, for example, that fit somewhere in this niche uh, between what jazz and sort of jazzy blues, what is the, the, the beginnings of even country music is this jug band music, right? And uh, his Jug Stompers were one of the popular um, uh, bands on Beale Street then in Memphis, Tennessee, right, in the 1930s. And as we know, Memphis and Beale Street in particular become one of the real sort of, uh, you know, creative centers of what is quickly becoming then American popular music in the 1920s, eventually morphing from blues and jug band music um, and jazz into, you know, what uh, rhythm and blues as it's renamed mostly for white audiences and uh, eventually rock and roll, which was the full-blown transformation of this black musical form into a commercial vehicle marketed mostly toward whom? Toward white kids, right? right. Uh, in the form of the 45 record. Uh, his song, Walk Right In, will be covered in the 1960s by a folk trio, a white folk trio called the Rooftop Singers, and later by uh, the New Orleans-based musician, uh, Dr. John, uh, and thus will make Gus Cannon's song into a popular hit in that more commercial, market-oriented realm of American popular music. And it was, we know, among those listening to this music were kids in post-war England, right, who were listening right. not only on their, their radios, but getting the imports of some of the American vinyl places like American military bases in Northern England, where, you know, a kid from Liverpool by the name of John Lennon will get some of his first American music. Uh, and uh, and so the, what becomes then the British wave, right? The British invasion of the early 1960s right. is in effect bringing back that American music creolized once again now, you know, through the channels of British musicality, bring it back uh, the famous arrival of the Beatles in early 1964, but then, you know, everything that follows then in that decade to inform the kind of, you know, not just musical understanding, but as we know, political understanding of a generation, right, in the 1960s. So that's my point, I guess, Josh, is we can tell these stories outside the rather restrictive uh, lanes of traditional sovereignty narrative history to get to a much, what, a wider, more inclusive, lived experience of history that as we see every time athletes step up on the podium, podium, you know, metal podiums at the Olympics, music is played, that recognizes now the centrality of these experiences and often how they get tied in even with, you know, politics and governance and that sort of, or even war, we think of wartime music. Well, the wartime music of America 1960s, the Vietnam War, tended to be critical of that sovereignty narrative, right? right? The anti-war protest songs and these things. And all of this then, much of this, I shouldn't say all of it, I don't want to overstate, but so much of the dynamism, dynamism, the memory tradition, the instrumentality, the improvisational quality, and the multifacetedness of community building and, and identity comes directly then out of this African um, tradition and this forced migration of Africans, that if we left it up to the traditional narratives, we just either would never talk about, or if we did uh, recognize it, it would be relegated, as I say, to a kind of window dressing.
That was fantastic work, Chris. I, I, you know, sometimes I'm a participant and sometimes I just want to sit back and just enjoy the kind of stories washing over me. And that, you know, you just provided such a, an amazing example of, of, of storytelling, of alternate sources and of, of different endings, really, of how we get to a different place, which is, as we've been talking about, what we should be trying to do in our history teaching, history writing, history podcasting as well. And you know, when, when we were talking about what to do for this episode and you, you were talking about you know, the story of, of music that you wanted to talk about, it, it kind of reminded me of, of something I read, uh, an interview with an Uruguayan writer, uh, a guy named Eduardo Galeano, who you all should look up because he's, he's uh, incredible. But uh, he was talking to an interviewer named James Young in The Guardian, uh, and he confessed in that interview that, quote, his greatest fear is that we are all suffering from amnesia. And when Young... Uh, asked who's responsible for this amnesia, Galliano replied, it is not a person, it's a system of power that is always deciding in the name of humanity, who deserves to be remembered and who deserves to be forgotten. He then concluded by saying, we are much more than we are told. We are much more beautiful. Mm. And yeah. to me, that's a reminder that, that we have, as historians, um, we would play a role in how people understand our own humanity. Um, when we tell stories that are just about competition and dominance and violence and sovereignty, then um, it makes people believe that those things are all a fundamental part of, of human nature. Um, and then, you know, in, in theory, that's going to determine how they act. It's going to, as you were saying earlier, I really like that phrase, you say it conditions us to look for certain kinds of stories, to understand ourselves in certain ways. And I think we can do better than just telling those kinds of stories um, you obviously just gave us a, an incredible example of that uh, a, a bit ago, and this is not to say we should hide the bad stuff. This is this is you know there's a, there's a little danger here that by saying we should tell stories other than these stories of violence, competition, and dominance, we're hiding the bad stuff. We're hiding our heads in the sand. Well, you know what, but Josh? Think, yeah, let yeah. me just throw in because that that's such an important point. I mean, I touched upon certain. Uh, facets of the musical history but remember the reason why the banjo gets put into the mainstream of white popular you know sort of musical consciousness is because it was the minstrel singers mm -hmm. who were white uh players wearing blackface right. you know who who took the banjo in a kind of parody of what they saw as the debased nature of black culture mm -hmm. uh, for the entertainment of white audiences and would act outlandishly and comically you know, and condescendingly uh, as minstrel players. But by and by, you know, so I mean, there's there's an example of right of, of the, the sort of, um, you know, what the, the cruelty of a racial caste yes. system. Right. Right. But but, you know, interestingly, water, you know, culture being like water finding the cracks is that the popularity of those minstrel shows will then sort of introduce the banjo, you know, kind of sideways into American white musical culture yes. as well. And that will pick up its own then legitimacy as a as what is a, as a whether it be bluegrass or an instrument in, in white what's called country music. Hillbilly you know? music, right? Hillbilly music, that sort yeah. of thing. Which is also, though, therefore, how the memory gets, you know, uh, gets distorted and ultimately erased, that it becomes, ironically to be saying, as part of a, a white musical tradition. Yeah. Right. So the cruelty's there, right? The bad stuff's there. But, but history, I think, has to be more than just a catalog of atrocities. And the more we can mix in stories, focus on things other than the workings of power, I think what we can start doing is this vital task of trying to redefine our own sense of ourselves 
as a species that's not just about you know violence dominance competition but defined by resilience creativity community and cooperation and and that should be part of our goal as we kind of you know we're now getting close to august i think many of us teachers are, are getting ready to think about starting to prepare to maybe go back soon to the classroom um, or at least the online classroom that we should be trying to find these stories that that really present human history human nature um, as something bigger than the stories that often get told something bigger than just as Gandhi said those interruptions in the natural order of things and we should we should start talking about human nature in in a way that you know, we'll maybe provide our students with a different path, a different way of thinking about our own place in the present, our own, you know, uh, roles in the past and our own sense of what the future can be. Well, I love that, uh, partner. You know, we might say, you know, follow the music, you follow the history. Uh, and, and hey, let, let it not be forgotten that while John Meacham might have said I was the soul of this podcast. <laughs> you know, he also said, you are the lion of this podcast. Appreciate that, buddy. Uh, we will talk to you again in a couple of weeks. This has been History Against the Grain, episode 48. Take care. Nobody is innocent. It's a sin when you play into ignorance. Another one closing your eyes again. So you don't have to see what's happening. Then now, what's going on in these streets? You can't live by what you see on TV. Stop sucking a cycle so we